Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, host of the RouterFlex podcast and founder and CEO of our day job recruiting firm, RouterFlex. We hope you enjoy this episode. And as a reminder, please subscribe to the podcast for updates and news. Finally, if you haven't already, check out the series of books we've published on hiring, interviewing, and overall career advice titled The RouterFlex Guide, available on Amazon. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Most homeowners don't have the time or expertise to properly take care of their home, which causes costly issues to arise. That's where Cura Home Maintenance comes in. We're a full-service, routine maintenance company that was developed by a certified home inspector. Each quarter, we service our clients' homes following manufacturer's recommendations to properly maintain all the necessary appliances. We provide the materials and expertise to prolong the life of your property, creating a healthy and efficient environment for your family. From top to bottom, we'll maintain and service your home. To get started, we have a property inspection to determine what needs to be maintained, and a maintenance plan is created based on your preferences. From refrigerator coils to filters, vents, and drains, we do it all, and we do it well. Contact us today for your free routine maintenance inspection and never worry about your maintenance again. Nick Burke and Dante on the RouterFlex podcast for the second time. Hello, Nick. How are you, sir? I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me back on. I'm a return guest, so I guess I did something right the first time. Oh, man, great interview the first time. I was listening <laughs> to... I was listening to it on the treadmill this morning and uh, you did such a great job of just being open about family and who you are as a person, just really genuine, right? Authentic. I mean, we get that a lot from, from guests, but sometimes guests are just so, uh, I don't know. Sh- I don't know if sheltered is the right word or careful or overly cautious and they won't share. And, you know, you, you did a great job of just really opening yourself up. So I'm glad to have you, uh, Thanks. Well, I think people sometimes are, um, you know, cautious or reserved about sharing their stories in general. Um, Well, then you have the other side of it. You know, people on social media overshare, (laughs) share stuff you don't want to, where it's like, hey, let's, uh, you know, so, uh, but I'm, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad it resonated. Speaking of social media, that's when I see your name is uh, Twitter specifically. And usually it's something about hockey most of the time. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, my social media presence is interesting. Cause like, I don't, I don't even have Facebook or I have it, but like, so people will be like, Hey, uh, I never see you do anything on Facebook. I'm like, I haven't checked it in 15 years. I don't know what to tell you. Um, you know, I get like updates about our homeowners association. Uh, and that's about it. Um, and then, uh, you know, LinkedIn, you try to be a little more, like sure. professional oriented and you, know, you focus on your business and all that. Uh, Instagram is just photos of pizza and my kids. That's <laughs> it. Pizza and my kids. Uh, and then Twitter is like, we're all like my, yeah, it's, it's sports stuff. Um, I did, I spent, um, uh, I don't know, five, six years um, where I was doing uh, like sports analytics and, um, analyzing deals for player agents and also oh, for teams and okay. helping them to try to navigate how to, you know, figure out 
a resolution for a contract and things like that. Right. So it then it became like it kind of developed a social media presence because I was doing that. People that follow hockey started following me. Yep. And so then now there's this expectation. I'll keep pumping out, uh, you know, stuff about hockey. I don't have as much time now, man. I've got the business. I've got kids. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I try to keep them happy. They get really frustrated if I talk about other stuff. Like I'll talk about Italian soccer and they're like, that, that's not why we're here. Unfollow. <laughs> uh, how old are the kids now? Uh, so I've got a six-year-old uh, boy. He's in kindergarten, and then um, we've got a three-year-old going on four. And she's—I hear her out there, so if you hear noise. Man, it's busy at your house, buddy. The two t- two toddlers. Oh man, yeah. You, there's there's uh there's always something going on. It, yeah, it is. Um, you know, it's hard. It, it's just uh, my wife takes a ton of. You know, she gets a ton of credit for all the work she does with the kids that gives me a little bit more time to focus on, you know, uh, on our business and, and what we're uh, doing with our patients, uh, which is good. Um, And then what I I just try to focus on time blocking myself and allotting enough time for, for both, right. To spend time with family and we got three dogs. We have a full house. (laughs) We have a turtle somewhere somewhere up upstairs we got it yeah and you're you're in your early 40s uh you know i don't know how you have the energy plus you're an entrepreneur plus a ceo yeah it's uh oh man at the end of the day are you just like okay i'm just <laughs> well i think what happens you know for for anybody who has kids they understand like the first year or two you don't sleep right it's the you know you're up in the middle of the night uh and that's just rolled on like that's <laughs> that's just been my steady state for you know since we had our first in in 2017 it's just been that uh so you know when i started um pursuit care uh really in earnest in 2019 i was already like well versed on not getting sleep it was just focusing <laughs> some time towards that as opposed to changing diapers and you know feeding the baby takes a lot of energy we're grandparents now i have two granddaughters uh one is five and one is three and when we watch them like we'll we'll, we'll watch them for like a day right gosh nick at the end of the day i'm like holy shit this takes a lot of energy like i forgot (laughs) i forgot how much energy this takes i mean wow Uh. yeah i uh I try to convince my parents um, they're good. Look, they live close by. They're pretty good about, um, cool. you know, they'll take the kids and, and all that. But, but so like my dad, I've throughout the years, I've worked with my dad. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think, as you know, I think you've, uh, you know, worked, uh, worked with him too, but so he's still going strong, you know, running healthcare, uh, practices and being involved. He's involved, uh, with pursue care as, as a board member. Um, nice. so, you know, he's like, Hey, I already served my time, Nick. Like I can't take your kids to, um, you know, I raised you. <laughs> uh, how old, how old is your dad now? Let's see. He is 70. Oh no, I'm, I'm, am I overdating him? Oh my gosh. And yeah, now I need to know this. 71. Yeah. 71. Okay. 
Yeah, what a great story from your dad, too. I should have him on the podcast. Uh, dropped off on Ellis Island, right? Immigrant uh, from Italy yep. and made his own way. Ended up uh, going into uh, to be a pharmacist and then starting a company and then having an exit, et cetera. Yeah, wow. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, he has a great, great story, too, for sure. Yeah, he's got... Um... Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it, a lot of. I I think I owe a lot of. Obviously, what I've learned about being an entrepreneur and hard work and all that, but um, just also the lack of sleep. <laughs> just having a motor that doesn't stop is that. Has he? Genetic has he? Uh, soft. Has he softened a little bit with the grandkids, or he's still pretty pretty hardcore? No, he's he's soft. He's definitely softened. I mean, he. Uh, I don't know if he'd admit he's softened, but he, um, you know, for, I think from when I'm a kid to how he, like he, he spoils, um, yeah. young, uh, young Sam Mercadante. He, uh, you know, there's a lot of extra, uh, toys and stuff in our house that just appear because, uh, you know, grandpa <laughs> brought him out and bought him something. Uh, pretty cool, man. That's great. That's great. And, uh, How's life in Connecticut? Good still? Everything's still good in the Northeast? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, you know, we are, uh, we like it here. Like we, you know, I think a lot of uh, folks more frequently now move around, uh, families move around. And I don't know, some of that is work and some of it is, it, you know, I think it's different than it used to be. Maybe people don't plant the roots quite as deep and buy a home and all those things. So, you know, a lot of people really through their 20s, 30s, and even into their 40s, they still, you know, are like, hey, I'm going to pick up and move mm -hmm. someplace new and chase a job or whatever it is. Um, you know, you have more people in the family that are careerists and yeah. But it's, uh, for us, we like it in Connecticut. Um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful place. Uh, it's not cheap here, but it's, nope. uh, it's home, you know, so. The winters, uh, I remember my first winter. I don't know if you remember this, but I lived in Connecticut for three years. Back. I remember. Yeah. You told me. Yep. Yeah. I remember our first winter there. I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. This is, uh. Well, look, it's so that's the interesting thing. Uh, you know, I was just talking to somebody about this, but it, it it's gotten progressively more mild. So okay. I think there is something to that whole global warming thing. Okay. I don't know, but it I it's um you, you know I when I was a kid and you know I even I remember up until like my twenties. I mean, we would have winter where we get dumped on, you know, yeah. put putting a half of snow at a clip uh and it was fun when you're a kid it's fun um but uh it's 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 more mild now so i don't know maybe yeah. it's uh it'll flip-flop we'll, we'll become the retirement uh community and florida will become uh you know <laughs> who knows too hot to live in yeah who knows yeah yeah seriously yeah for sure so let's talk about the business, uh, Pursue Care, by the way, for the listeners, PursueCare.com. Um, I'd like for you to, you've been on the show, but I'd like for you to give another brief overview. And then I just have lots of update questions uh, about, you know, how things are going. And then I want to ask about the market and uh, I have a whole host of things I want to chat about. But before we get into that, 
let's do a quick overview for the listeners. Pursue Care. Uh, it's pursuecare.com. We want to give the another quick three minute uh, yeah. overview. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So Pursue Care is um, a the way that I like to describe it is it's a uh, it's a virtual clinic for substance use disorder treatment and broader behavioral health needs of people that are struggling predominantly with substance use disorder uh, or addiction, um, uh, depending on how you refer to it. And what I mean by that virtual clinic is that most of the care that we provide, we do just like we're doing this today, right? We do it via um, video, telemedicine. We have an app um, that our patients would download on their phone. It's got a bunch of tools and features for their care, tracking their care plan, tracking their medications and, and scheduling appointments, chatting with their care team. Uh, and then we're delivering our care while they're in the comfort of their home or you know, we'll treat patients when they're taking a 15 minute break from work and they're in their car, um, wherever it's needed. Um, that's, that's where we are, right? And so we're able to cross uh, a lot of barriers to addiction treatment that are pretty pervasive. Um, people in, especially in rural communities, they just don't have access to high quality treatment for mm -hmm. substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. um, medical care, it's hard to go and talk with your primary care doctor or even find one that is willing to work with you uh, and get you medications that you need to recover from opioids, for instance. Um, that's challenging for a lot of people in rural communities in particular, but everywhere. Um, finding high quality counseling and um, mental health therapy to go along with that, it can be challenging as well and time consuming. Uh, and then also we do psychiatry too uh, for patients that are struggling with serious mental illness and, and, and other conditions like that. So all those things are really tough to um, access, just you know, try calling a mental health provider provider, they might say, Hey, look, it's five months until mm -hmm. I can see you, you right. know? Um, and then never mind the fact that you have to get in the car, drive to the clinic. Um, you're going to take time out of work or time out of childcare. Uh, you know, by the time you're done with that, all of that, you might have a 30 minute visit that actually took you two and a half hours to accomplish. Right. right? Yes. yes. So it's really challenging from that perspective for people. So this helps to solve for that. And then the other thing it helps to solve for is cost uh, for our patients, but also for our the health plans that we work with. We're covered by um, all insurances in the, okay. um, the 13 states where we, we treat patients. Uh, we work extensively with Medicaid and Medicare populations, but we, right. you know, we work with commercial insurances. It's covered on the plan. Many times there's no copay. Um, uh, you know, it's a low cost form of treatment that is very easy to access for patients. So that's really important. And a one-stop um, and a one-stop shop, right? I can, if I am a, do you, do you call them clients, customers, patients, what do you, patients? Patients. Yeah, we call, yeah. we call all, all of our patients are our patients. Okay. And so if I'm a patient and I am a member or I sign up for Pursue Care, I can talk to my psychiatrist. I can get my medications filled from a pharmacy yeah. and I can also talk to a doctor, all three. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And what we do traditionally is we'll, um, so, so I think one of the important things about our model that we're really proud of is we, we're not just like 
a direct-to-consumer model. You know, if somebody finds us on the web and they call contact us, absolutely, we'll we'll take them into our care. We're, you know, we're taking, um, you know, dozens of patients every day, right? Okay. Are, are signing up for treatment, okay, uh, and many on their own. But the big thing for us is we work very extensively with community health treaters. So we're working with your local hospitals and health systems, uh, primary care offices community health um, centers um, to help to create a warm handoff or a transition of care opportunity for people that get identified as with a need. So if, if you could imagine somebody that ends up in the emergency room uh, because of a crisis, what comes next? Oftentimes it's nothing, right? It's a discharge plan with like, you know, call somebody and figure it out. What we'll do is we'll create a transition point there where actually the staff at the emergency room helps to introduce them to our care. And then we take over, we have a patient access specialist that talk to the patient, okay. uh, tell them about what we do and how we do it, get a better understanding of what their needs are and set them up with their care team for the initial evaluation and, and developing a treatment strategy. So um, most of your, most of your patients are coming from a primary care doctor or a hospital stay or some other yeah. uh, facility that says, "Hey, Johnny, listen, you should probably use Pursue Care," and then they're connecting. That that's exactly, and yeah, yeah. About seventy five percent of our patients come from exactly that. Um, okay. And you know, the other thing I think it's help it's helpful to understand is in most of those settings, you don't have those conversations routinely. Most people, mm. whether you're in healthcare, right, you're you're going to get you know your annual wellness exam done with your primary care or you're kind of outside of it you know when you get sick you go to an urgent care because you don't have a primary care provider they're not accessible right. either either of those scenarios you frequently if you're somebody struggling with substance use disorder which let's be blunt there's 30 million plus people in this country that meet the DSM-5 criteria for having substance use disorder Right. What is that criteria? I don't, I don't, I don't mean to go down a rabbit hole to get you off flow here, but what is that criteria real quick? It, it's it, to boil it down to like a 10 second is that their use of substances imp impacts or impairs their quality of life, their ability to, um, okay. uh, you know, get through their daily activities. I got you. Right. And, and so there's a whole spectrum, right? Mild, very mild early stage, and then very severe. What we know about and what we equate with addiction is the severe. It's when somebody hit, it's calcified, right? It's been five, 10 years of substance use disorder that results in people ending up in a very bad place, losing their job, losing their family, mm -hmm. being in and out of the emergency room. That's mm -hmm. when we traditionally in healthcare intervene, right? And that's too late. <laughs> it's too late. It should be happening at the beginning when it's mild. We should be making and normalizing okay. mental health assessments and substance use assessments to help people to navigate into preventive care mm. for that. Just like you do with anything else. Just like mm -hmm. when the doctor mm -hmm. hits your, your knee and looks in your ear and right. They, all of those things, it should just be normalized. And it's not, it's not yet. So what we're trying to do, our, our big vision and big strategy is to normalize that. I and see. then when that occurs, 
it's not, it shouldn't be all on the primary care provider to figure it out. They should have a resource, a partner that can okay. help them. To, so when they have that conversation with the patient, the very next thing that happens is, and we have somebody that can help you with that. And let's introduce them to you so we can start that process. And historically, what has it been? If I, if I went to my primary care doctor and he said, hey, you have a problem what was happening in the past? He would say, uh, I have a, there's a facility that I want to refer you to. And he writes me a referral. And then I try to get into the facility and it's a five month wait. Is that, was that what was? If that, I think if you're lucky, um, you know, whether it's a plan thing, like you just said, or coming out of the emergency room, you know, you have your kind of disposition of care, your um, summary of next steps. Everybody gets that sheet of paper. Okay. You know, and, and on there, we'll say follow up with, and maybe it gives you a list with phone numbers, right? Mm -hmm. If that, right? If that. So a lot of it is kind of left to chance. It's, it's yeah, maybe if you have a, a doc who's tapped in and they know a local clinic or rehab facility, if, if the patient needs in, inpatient care or detox, yeah, they might refer for you. Um, but then the issue is, do they have capacity? And most I, don't, right? They're and packed. most don't, most don't. Yeah. I, um, but I, I think a lot of the times it's just left to chance. It's just like, hey, you should do something about this. Good luck. Yeah, good luck. And most people <laughs> don't, most most people don't follow up. I mean, what, but the it's percentage hard. of people, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, who, I, I always tell folks like, because, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a lot of it is about normalizing that, addiction and substance use disorder, mental health issues are everywhere. They're in every family. Totally. Yep. They're, you know, and, and we've got to kind of overcome that um, culturally. But I, I think even with that, it's hard for people to follow up on any type of healthcare. When, <laughs> how many of us have nagging, you know, yep. my shoulder, my neck has been bothering me forever. Do I go to physical therapy all the time? Like I'm supposed to, do I do the exercises? I'm so no, I don't. <laughs> At some point it's going to get so bad that I have to. That's right? right. Yeah. And so we have to start normalizing. Like that's how you got to think about substance use disorder as well. Is like, okay. am I drinking too much? You know, I don't know. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Let's get, have some experts try to figure that out and then help us with a plan for how to manage that. Right. And that should be happening. What percentage of your patients are uh, addicts versus mental health versus like, like bipolar or something versus, yeah. versus depression? Like what, what's the breakdown? Yeah. So, so for us, you know, we really cast ourselves as substance use disorder treatment experts, right? That's okay. our, our expertise is focusing on that. Okay. Um, first as a primary diagnosis. So okay. really uh, about 85% of our patients, that's I see. what they're coming to us for first and foremost. Now okay. of that group, over 70% of those patients have a, what's called a comorbid uh, mental health condition. I see. And that can run on a spectrum, right? It can be something okay. as uh, simple as, you know, mild depression, uh, or it can be something much more complex, uh, mm -hmm. you know, true serious mental illness, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so there's a spectrum there, but you can, as you can tell, most of the patients that we serve have some need for, for that help as well. 
And it makes sense. A lot of uh, substance use disorder is brought on by, you know, what you, whatever you want to call it, self-diagnosing, trying to, you know, mm -hmm. uh, live day to day and get through your day with, with a mental health issue. A, a ton of patients we have have experienced trauma and that is, um, I see, you know, it's a little chicken and egg, but a, a, a lot of our patients, it started with trauma. And then it advanced to substance use disorder as well. Trauma as in they were in a car wreck and they had a major injury and then they started taking it, pills. It could be that, or it could be mental health trauma as well. Right. We have okay. a lot of patients with that have PTSD uh, symptoms. Uh, we have a ton of veterans. We have people that have experienced extensive abuse, um, you know, mental and physical. So all of those, we kind of, you, you know, catch-all phrase, obviously, but trauma drives a lot of um, the behaviors that then, you know, lead to substance use. And and obviously over time, it turns from maybe using it because you're experiencing something and you don't, you want to numb it. You don't want to feel it anymore yep, yep. to dependency to addiction. Right. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. What percent, I, I don't mean, you don't have to get exact, but I'm just curious on this. On the addiction, is it heavily to, uh, leaning towards opioids or is alcohol the the bigger one or what, well, what so do you see? Yeah. It's a great question because, you know, the last time we talked was, when was it, 2020? Three, three, almost three years ago. Yep. Yep. Okay. A lot has changed <laughs> in the world. <laughs> yeah, you know, we went through a global pandemic. Right. Um, so that was fun. Uh, yeah. The, <laughs> the um, you know, the fascinating thing that came out of that was the amount of um, collateral damage for people mm -hmm. with their mental health and substance use disorder mm -hmm. across the country. Um, doesn't matter what anybody's opinion is on. How we handled the pandemic, but the reality is that the amount of isolation that people experienced was like really profound, right? Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about, um, you know, I'm fortunate. I live in Connecticut. I live in a you know beautiful neighborhood with other families around. I've got my family. I've got people around me for support, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't have that. A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't. Yep. And it could be somebody tucked in a little apartment in a big city. Yes. Or it could be somebody way out in rural Kentucky. They don't have that. that. They're yeah. isolated. That's right. That's right. And what happened during COVID was they were isolated for long stretches and they didn't have access to healthcare as well because everybody was just focused on the COVID thing. Mm -hmm. So you it turned into different, um, mm -hmm. you know, different stuff. It was, if you asked me three years ago, I would have said it's all opioids, right? And now it's not. Uh, about 30 percent 35% of our patients are what's called poly substance use which is multiple drugs I see. Uh, alcohol stimulants and opioids the other issue that uh crept up over this three year span is is fentanyl right heroin oh, that's on my, that's on my list here that I yeah, prepared heroin doesn't it really exist any I mean I saying that uh, you know a little bit um yeah, I understand. Uh, but it doesn't really, it's not out there. You know, we don't treat a lot of patients where they're like, I use heroin. It is fentanyl. Um, fentanyl is everywhere. It's in other drugs. So we have patients that come to us for, for instance, uh, you know, they have a substance use disorder with stimulants, methamphetamine, right? Okay. Okay. We do a toxicology screen. They have fentanyl in their system. 
and they didn't even know it. Oh, and they didn't even know it. Ooh, they didn't wow. even know it. Or they knew, but they said, I don't know. I don't know what's in it. I don't care. I just, you know, I go and get it from my dealer. And, you know, so there's an incredible kind of this crossing over of, of drugs that's occurred. So a large percentage of your new clients coming in or new patients coming in now have a trace of fentanyl, a large yeah, and, yeah. And they, fentanyl, fentanyl leads the way in terms of what we treat. Opioids leads the way. Okay. Uh, we become much, uh, you know, a resource, a, a I think, a, hopefully a trusted resource for people with opioid addiction and fentanyl is the leader in that, right? Um, why, why do you think, I know we could probably do a whole episode just on this question I'm about to ask you. Why are the criminals purposely sprinkling in fentanyl to other things like what like what what is the i'm trying to think like okay what, what's, what's your strategy what, what's your yeah, strategy yeah. here like what, what i don't understand what so as a business person my first thought is why would you give away free drugs and sprinkle it on things yeah like what are, you, are you trying are you trying to make them addicted so that you get more sales like what, what, what are you doing I, that's what i <laughs> it's it's really um you know, it's really confusing. It's it's hard to parse out what's actually happening, like what's happening, yeah. like what, yeah, what's what is, the, yeah, if you were, you know, if you were uh, in the drug distribution, right. you know, business, right? right. What's the game? Yeah, what's what, the strategy? Um, I don't know. I don't know. You're right. It's probably its own expose uh, podcast. And I think that, um the agencies that are trying to figure out how to best, um, you know, I mean, look, the DEA, they're an enforcement agency, right? They're at the end of the day, they're police. Um, they're trying to figure out the best way to enforce and to prevent. Um, and they're having a lot of trouble because oh, yeah. they, it's not, there's not like one focus. It's not like, okay, it's the Mexican cartels and they're, yeah pressing fake fentanyl pills and getting them out there because it's a quick sale. No, I mean, it's raw ingredients that are coming from China through Canada, down through the Ohio river. And, you know, someone locally in, you know, Northwest Kentucky is pressing those pills. Wow. And it, it, so it's, it's really strange. What I go back to though is fentanyl is very cheap. Very cheap to make. I, oh, the, oh, oh, I see. I didn't know that. The raw, Actually, yeah, fentanyl is really cheap to make. The raw ingredients are cheap, you know. So it becomes something. It's almost like if you think of, uh, it used to be like, well, you know, is it pure heroin or pure cocaine? Or, right. And it's cut with other stuff. Well, fentanyl is now the cutting agent in some respects, which is incredibly dangerous. Because you just don't know if what you're getting you don't mm. know what the makeup mm. is. So my, mm. the thing that I always say. Oh, that's that. Okay. You you just, you just, you just educated me on something. Yeah. They used to cut the heroin, cut the cocaine, put, put some other shit in there to, to, to water it down. Yeah. And if fentanyl says the fentanyl is super cheap, there you go. That's it's the cutting cheap agent. That, and it's super that's, addictive. That's and, how it's. So this increase now in stimulant it. use in meth, which is this, it's, dramatically increased over the past three or four years mm. a lot of that is propelled by fentanyl because fentanyl has is so addictive it changes your brain chemistry right what is um, it by the way what is it i know like heroin comes from the 
poppy plant. I get. I, I'm not an expert at this. Yeah. But where, well, where does look, fit, not, you know, this is where you know I I full. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, right? Yeah, but, me too. Um, I'm a I'm a recruiter, not a doctor. Yeah, I work with really smart doctors that have you know explained it to 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 me so that I can understand it. But really, what it comes down to is that opioids um, are you, you know, we have receptors uh, in our brain, dopamine receptors, and opioids go into those receptors and they, you know, affect that they have their euphoric effect. And over time, those receptors kind of get stretched out. Okay. So you need more and more, right? And that's why, that's how addiction builds. I see. And you need to keep feeling it. Your body keeps, it's like your receptors like get fatigued. And the only way to wake them back up is to keep plugging those in I see, right i see i see and so in fentanyl is like a supercharged version because it's so potent um that it really fast tracks that reaction in the brain um and the you know whereas um a stimulant is kind of in and out of your bloodstream pretty quickly and it doesn't mm. really have that same effect when you put fentanyl in it well now guess what you're getting the stimulant effect but you're also having that permanent, you know, brain chemistry damage that's happening with. Where does it come from? How's it made? What plant does it come from? Do you know? It doesn't come from a plant. It's chemically. It's I mean, chem the, the, the core, the core ingredient of it is, you know, it's an opioid, right? So okay. Okay. The, there, there are like core ingredients to any derivative that come from, yeah, certain plants like a poppy plant for. Okay. Okay. Um, but it's it's a chemical derivative so it's created in a lab essentially i see, um, I see. I see. And, and so it's, it's bad you know it's really really bad um you know um i've heard so many nightmare stories about it and we've even had even here in colorado i have friends that have had you know the kids in school they get something they don't know it's laced with fentanyl yep. you know people dying um was uh do you believe that that the human intention for fentanyl in the beginning was an evil thing or was somebody in a lab actually trying to create a medicine that stopped pain and then bad people got a hold of it yeah i mean look fentanyl has legitimate uses in in hospital settings uh you know anesthesia and, and pain management um it is an absolutely legitimate, uh, there are legitimate uses that okay. it's been tried and true and used successfully for a long time. And I don't think, you know, this is different than what happened with Purdue Pharma with Oxycontin, where that was, well, I think as most more people know, um, yeah. that was really an effort by a pharmaceutical company to get something out there that they knew was dangerously addictive, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. that would be handed out to patients with mild, moderate pain that would then cause them to keep coming back for more. Fentanyl was never used that way, right? I it was see. always used in hospital settings for ser for surgeries. And, you know, I, I mean, see. I went through serious surgeries. I think I might've talked about on our last um, podcast and uh, I, I don't remember what they gave me, but I know I needed pain management and the tried and true pain management is with opioids, right? And yeah. they work. 
You know, it's just their work under a doctor's care in that setting where they're used at the appropriate dosage and you know their pharmaceutical grade quality. Um, So I think that this is purely that they took that and said, we can make that too. I see. You know, know, I watched watched both of those. there's, there was two uh, movies slash series about the Sackler family. One yeah. of them. So I watched both of them. Um, I wonder, you know, I'm assuming that, that in, in the beginning, the, the, the scientists or the, the lab guys, like I, I'm assuming that like they really are trying to find something that solves pain. That's not addictive. And wouldn't, wouldn't that just be like, the ultimate thing, right? I mean, I mean, yeah. if you could figure out how to, if you could figure out how to stop pain without addiction, that would be like, I don't know, discovering penicillin or uh, I don't know, uh, curing polio or it would be huge. It would be giant, wouldn't it? Yeah. No, I, I look, I don't know. Maybe this is me like ever the optimist. So sometimes I'm starting to feel like I'm ever the pessimist, but um, uh, I would like to think that, the pharmaceutical industry does not always have right. our worst intentions or pro- purely profit in mind. I do think that, you know, maybe behind the business aspect of it, there are scientists and researchers that are trying to solve for human condition problems, whether it's sick so. care or mental health, or mm-hmm. I don't think that there's like, a, you know, there was like a cabal of nefarious yeah scientists in a lab going like we've got to concoct something to yeah <laughs> to kill to kill and, and create so much havoc and damage and suffering i think that what happens though is that then you attach you know it's the american way right you attach a profit yes. motive there you go that's right yeah and in somewhere along the lines it morphs and everybody it's why as a you know and i know you feel the same way, but as a, a founder and a someone who feels like, okay, I've, I've started a business. I have a startup. It's, it's now, you know, growing and we're, doesn't matter if you're in healthcare or some other industry, you have to have a mission, a vision and core values. Mm-hmm. And those have to be ever present with everything you do. With, Agreed yourself and how you hold yourself accountable with your staff, with your investors. And you cannot be flexible to your mission, vision, and core values uh, from that perspective, because you will end up doing things that we see in these industries, pharma, insurance. There are a lot of great people that want to help other people that work within insurance companies, right? But we know the reputation that a lot of insurance companies have. Yep. How do you square that up? I think it's because they become so big and unwieldy that you've got a subset of people that are like, hey, look, my job every day is to make sure that we drive a 78% margin. That's and right. <laughs> all I'm looking at is a spreadsheet. I don't That's see right. what yeah. denied care on a surgery mm-hmm. that put someone through pain and suffering. I just don't mm-hmm. even see it. You know, That's yeah. where it's becomes problematic i want to ask you about the the i don't the mental health necessarily is a smaller percentage but do you see the depression the mental health especially of young people do you think that's going to grow and do you think social media 
is driving that. I'm just curious is because I would see, I would think that a lot of younger, and I've heard that the girls, especially uh, young women, especially uh, are, are being affected. And, you know, every day they're looking at their phone of like the perfect girl and the perfect clothes with the perfect body. And then they start feeling bad about themselves. Do you, do you think you'll, you'll increase in patients because of this? Yeah. I mean, look, I think, um, there's definitely an element of, I don't want to call it like a self-fulfilling prophecy, but that social media and the increase in the prevalence of people willing to talk about their mental health conditions Mm. will cause other people to experience more mental health conditions. You know, I don't want to say that that's what's happening. I, I like to think more so what's happening is that more people are willing to share like, hey, I'm struggling, right? I'm struggling and this is how I'm struggling. But there is, I, I do, I would say there is probably some element of that social media has an unhealthy effect on people's mental health in general. And, totally. uh, you know, the way the mechanism for how social media works and what it you know some of the behaviors it makes you it gets you into are not healthy right <laughs> um and when you and then couple that with all of the, the different kind of pervasive things like that you have influencers and they all look perfect and you oh, know and yeah, you compare right. yourself to them and 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 that and then you you look at who's most susceptible to you know, struggling with that and struggling with their own perception of themselves. It's our young people, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's young, you know, men and women that mm -hmm. are, that's what they're seeing. And that's, that's what's hitting them in the face every day. Um, I, I, but I'd like to say, I think that there's also that good side of social media that, you know, look, it also is a place where some people feel safer sharing that they're struggling and they might be able to find other people that can help them and communicate with them that are, that they don't have within their immediate vicinity, whether yeah, it's friends or family. Right. So there's an point. element of that too. You know, I don't know. What happens if the 16 year old girl, I guess the 16 year old girl can't, can't call you and sign up and pay and do all that. But not with Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. We, we look, we, we are focused on 18 and okay. older, but we get okay. asked, frequently um okay. to treat patients that are adolescent teenagers and we do in some cases on a case-by-case -case basis we do that okay. the one caveat i'd say is that it is um there are look there's unique challenges to providing telemedicine virtual care that okay. maybe in-person care can solve for better with um uh adolescents and teens um not least of which is like parental consent and oversight what what does the parent know versus not know and there's there's some you know sometimes it can be a little uncomfortable yeah for a parent when you find out that your teen is independently engaged with a therapist online right mm -hmm. this would be the perception so mm -hmm. we are we're starting to go into navigating into that um we're looking to work with some of our health system partners to do a hybrid care scenario where we okay Take folks that they're working with in the community and you know you have a you can have a little of both right you have the the opportunity to have greater access to care through us but then you have that that kind of uh, backstop 
of the local community treater that we can send the individual to if they need extra help. Okay. Uh, okay. When you, I have a question here and I know we're uh gosh, man, I want to ask you about a hundred more questions. I'm already, I can't believe we're pushing up on our time already. I go for the third podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A quick question. Uh, do I see the, do I see my psychiatrist's face when I'm talking to him or is it just, yes. yeah, it's just like this, right? Um, it's, uh, you know, face to face video. Okay, great. Uh, good, and, good, good. Yeah. And, and, and is it like, I need to talk to you right now. I'm having a moment or do I have to like, it can be, no, it can be. We, we have a lot of, um, really, really great, uh, compassionate providers that make themselves available Okay. You know, almost at like a moment's notice. Um, sometimes That's we have great. to kind of tell them like, don't, you know, like you have to, you know, there are boundaries, right? If, if, um, if you're off work and it's Sunday at midnight, um, but it's amazing how compassionate our healthcare providers are that in that, and this is what this platform enables is that a compassionate provider, yeah, they might get a chat message from a patient off hours and say, yeah, you know what, let me see it right now um, okay. and take care of that. And the okay. other thing that we have is a backstop is we have um, uh, care coordinators. They act as case managers for the patient's care overall. But what they also do is they provide a non-clinical, non you know, interventive backstop to help with navigating things. And they're on great. Great. 24 hours a day. That's great. Okay. Very good. Have you had loss of life? I'm sure you have. I'm sure that's happened where you, the patients. Yeah. And that's gotta be emotionally like the psychiatrist that was tagged to that patient or the doctor that was tagged to that patient. And they find out like, Oh, Mary passed away. Like, oof. Yeah. It's the hardest part of healthcare um, in mm. any setting. And I think for us, mm. Mm. it's particularly hard because we get to know our patients on uh, such mm. a personal level. Right. Mm. Um, mm. And so, yes, we have uh as a result of substance use disorder, um, we've mm. had patients who, um, you know, have, have committed suicide. Mm. Um, the, and it's, it's, um, and it's not, it's never easy. And we take every single, yeah. uh, one of those very, um, mm -hmm. you know, seriously and personally, I don't know. How'd how you find out? How did you, how did you find out? Well, sometimes, you know, sometimes we know that something's wrong because the patient is no longer actively engaged in treatment. We're we're so proud of the fact that we have such high engagement with our patients and in retention, which is a big thing for recovery from substance use is staying in treatment, right? Oh, and so, okay. All right. you know, we might be seeing a patient successfully for 90 days uh, and we do that, you know, 85% of our patients or roughly 85% of our patients make it through that first 90 days, which is a big deal. And That's great. In, in traditional settings, it's much lower. It's more like 30 to 35%. Um, so we have really wow. high rates with that. But what yeah. happens is um, they all of a sudden they stop showing up and we know something's wrong. And then sometimes it's because we call in for a wellness check or an emergency. So we've had that occur which is terrifying. Um, after the 90 days, that's a great percentage on 90 day success rate. How about long-term uh, people that fall back into addiction? Is it, what is it yep. like half, like half come back, half get, I don't know what the percentage is. 
Yeah, I mean, so it, it's variable, right? Because uh, everybody has their own individualized treatment plan and need. Some patients really kind of, I, I don't want to say graduate out of treatment, but they don't need us as much longer term. So um, we usually try to get patients, I'll just use opioids as an example, 12 to 18 months of care is where we feel comfortable um, by and large with titrating down our treatment, right? And they may only interact with us less frequently for therapy at that point or whatever their needs are. But okay. so um, for us, um, roughly 55 to 60% of our patients make it into that. Okay. That. Very, very good. How do you know that have been with us for three years though, you know, that okay. uh, they just stick with it. How do you know if they say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> like, I, I mean, you don't know. Yeah. You don't always know. Um, we do. I mean, look, we have some, you know, it's like everything else, customer service and satisfaction and are our patients happy uh, with our service and, but addicts yeah. lie. I mean, ad, addicts lie all the time, right? I'm sure they're always like, "Yeah, I haven't taken any drugs this week." Well, it's yeah, and that's our our thing is like we try to build up trust. You know, we okay. want to build up trust so okay. that they feel comfortable sharing that with us when they won't share it with anybody else. Right? I see. I see. Um, and that's a big, big deal for sticking with treatment. It okay. doesn't always happen that way. Some people aren't ready. Is how we refer to it. You know, we try to. Okay. In in when that happens, it's like. Sometimes we'll tell patients, look, this is not the right treatment for you. You need something different. You know, we can't help you in this setting. You need inpatient care, whatever it may be. Pretty soon, I mean, it's being able to do a urine sample and a blood sample from home. Like that, that's, that's going to happen soon. Somehow they're going to figure that out. We do it. We do it. Oh, oh, Uh, oh, that's already happened. I see. Okay. (laughs) So we, um, we were, uh, as far as I know, we're the first, um, in our industry to do at home toxicology screens via two ways, oral swab, um, we do it observed on camera. So they get, uh, uh, it's like a little cartridge type of thing and they take it out. It has a, a, a serial number etched in. They have to show the serial number. It has to match. Wow. Tamper, tamper evident. And then they do it on camera with a, with a care coordinator or sometimes with their provider. How about that? Tap it back in and ship it off to the lab. So we do that. And then we also do urine. We don't do that on camera. <laughs> we yeah. do uh, uh, DNA verified uh, urine screens in some instances where we oh. will actually we'll get the DNA sample first and then they'll send the huh. urine in. So, um, that's a little right. harder to navigate and it's expensive, but um, uh, so it works. And, and then we'll work with local labs too. How about blood? Blood is, we're not there yet. Blood is okay. the one we're not there. We have to send them to labs for blood work. Um, okay. So, yeah. It, okay. I'm guessing, I hope it's coming. Yeah. I mean, I just foresee at some point, uh, I just I just think it's going to be like, a, 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 a there's a microwave in every house. I think at some point I in the future, agree. there's a little machine and you just... You you do your urine and blood and it just automatically goes to. I think yeah. I think it I think it'll happen right. It, I, look, uh, what was it the uh, the Theranos story that that maybe set us back from doing uh, you know at home blood work, but um, it's only a matter of time. It's yeah. it's coming. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. I know uh, well, another question. These are these are so. Let's by the way, pursuecare.com, pursuecare.com. Love what Nick and his team are doing. It's such a such a such a youth followed your passion you're helping 
people, you're, you're, you're improving society in general and making money and generating cash into the economy as an entrepreneur. That's an awesome thing, right? There's a, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that, you know, I don't know, make a coffee cup, right? Or whatever. And that that's cool, uh, I guess. But if you can make money, generate cash into the economy and truly just help people improve their lives, like that's pretty special, my friend. That's pretty cool. Thank you. Yeah, that's we're, cool. we're really proud of it. So, so pretty cool. I appreciate that. Would you um, ask you this last question? Uh, one of the, A couple of last questions and we're out of time. Would you, if you had the power, if you had a magic wand, would you legalize drugs? Ooh. And and, I, and I, there's a follow up question to that, which is, uh, you know, is the war on drugs? I, I mean, like they're never. I mean, yeah. Well, <laughs> let me answer the the la the second question first because it kind of informs the first question. the The war on drugs is a failed. Yeah. War. It's not working. T taking the approach of it's a war, it's a battle, it's a fight. Yeah. It hasn't worked. So if right. something, it, you know, it's that whole the definition of insanity thing, right? It's like we got to stop doing the same things. We got to do something different. I think so. so. We've tried. You know, other countries have tried. I, I know in uh, Oregon, we've tried a, maybe a little bit in California, completely legalizing drugs, and that hasn't really worked either because I don't think that structurally and systemically we were ready for that right we okay. we didn't have enough resources around people who use drugs to okay. help them to safely do that until they're ready to get to treatment so right. I, it's it has to have do i think we should legalize drugs um maybe yes but it has to come with those structural systemic things to help people to get into treatment to give them safe um, ways to use drugs. Hey, you can test this to see that there's fentanyl in it, mm -hmm. right? Why don't we, uh, we should be handing test strips out like candy. It should be like, a, Great you idea. know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. test everything, tell your kids, you know, mm -hmm. your kids are going to experiment with, experiment with drugs. We all did, right? Yep, totally. <laughs> test what you're going to take. Don't Great be idea. stupid. Don't get killed. You know? Um, mm. So I think that we've got to do that first before we can just go, hey, look, we're going to take the restrictor plates off. But the one thing I would say about um, uh, law enforcement, I, you know, a lot a lot of times it's like, well, law enforcement is all bad and they're putting people who use drugs in jail. And that's not, you're right, it doesn't help. But one thing that can happen is it can be a point where you can interface with somebody and say, hey, we need to change your path, right? And we need to help you to get treatment. And we've had success doing that with corrections uh, facilities. So I think we're not quite there yet, but um, it may be where we go. My friend is trying to get me to come uh, do a psilocybin over at his house. And he calls it, he calls it traveling. He, he calls it traveling. He's got a, sure. he's got a, he's got like a yurt in his, uh, in his yep. backyard. The whole, he's got the, the whole thing set up. And he's like, you and Kim, he's like, you and Kim got to come over and you know, I'll take you traveling. And I'm like, man, yeah, maybe. Let me let me think about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's uh, that's become a thing. I was just asked the other day. Uh, Apparently, it's a thing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I yeah, somebody. I was talking about boy, I need a couple couple days off. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Or something, and they were like, "Well, are, you're going to go do ayahuasca in uh, wherever in, Ala like, in Alaska or something." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I have like a whole week to kill, maybe I was I just thinking know. about like a massage and like regular sleep for a couple of days. Yeah, yeah there you go. 
Nick, so uh, so great to have you back on the show, man. Really appreciate you. Thank you, sir, for sharing everything. And congratulations on what you guys are doing. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on.